Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to the season finale of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and this week I'll be bringing you two stories, and I'll get to those shortly. But as we do every week, let's kick the show off with a review. Now this week I don't have any new iTunes reviews, but I do have a review from Natalia on Facebook. And here it is. I developed bad insomnia a couple of months ago, and I browsed around for a storytelling podcast to listen to while trying to fall asleep. I stumbled upon stories of your and yours and was immediately pulled in by Sean's voice, an excellent talent for painting imagery into your mind with his storytelling. Listening to this podcast is like listening to the rain fall outside, calm and relaxing. Thank you for improving my nights. Now I'll tell you, it is very gratifying for a podcast host or an author or a musician or what have you to hear that something they're doing has impacted someone in a positive way. So, sincerely, Natalia, thank you for sharing that. And if you want to hear your review here on the air, you know what to do. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast and leave that review for me to read right here on the show. I need a whole new batch for Season 3, but don't waste any time. Go get those reviews going today. You can, of course, also get in touch with the show on social media, whether on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Podcast, and you can contact me through any of those methods or through syypodcast at gmail.com with requests or with your own original short story. Now, before I get into this week's stories, I just want to run through a few things that I'll call the state of the show. So this episode will wrap up the second season of Stories of Your and Yours, and for any stat nerds like myself out there who might be interested, I figured I'd throw a few facts and figures at you. I won't get into download numbers, but let's talk about what has been and what's coming up. I thought it might be interesting to go through where people are listening to the show, which episodes have been the most popular thus far, and things like that. So let's just get right into it. This season had 13 episodes, which will probably be about standard for seasons going forward. All in all, including bonuses, there have been 44 total episodes. Now this is a US-based show, and that's reflected in the download numbers, with just over 80% of downloads since the beginning of Season 1 coming from the United States. Now in total, Stories of Your and Yours has been downloaded in 93 different countries. The top 10 in terms of download numbers are the United States, the UK, Canada, France, New Zealand, Australia, Germany, the Russian Federation, Ireland, and Sweden. Now, if you'll permit, I will run through the rest of the countries real quickly here, just because I think it's pretty cool, and if you're a loyal listener in one of these countries, I want to give you a shout-out. Now, this will be starting at number 11 in terms of total downloads, and we'll run all the way through number 93. So, here we go, starting at number 11. Spain, Malaysia, Iran, India, the Netherlands, Saudi Arabia, Bangladesh, Jordan, Japan, Brazil, Turkey, Croatia, Morocco, China, Mexico, Portugal, non-specified Asia-Pacific region, I don't know what that means, Denmark, Italy, Poland, Thailand, Colombia, the Czech Republic, Norway, Egypt, Israel, Ukraine, Finland, Iraq, Korea, Myanmar, Singapore, Argentina, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Belgium, Taiwan, Greece, Slovenia, Costa Rica, Vietnam, Estonia, South Africa, Chile, Philippines, Dominican Republic, United Arab Emirates, Bosnia and Herzegovina, I don't know if I said that right, Georgia, Iceland, Kuwait, Romania, the Isle of Man, Nicaragua, Algeria, Hungary, 
Albania, Switzerland, Peru, Austria, Slovakia, Lithuania. Now, the rest of these countries have one total download since the beginning of the show. So if you're listening from any of these countries, and this is your second download, well, welcome back. And take a look at that back catalog, why don't you? So again, all these countries have one download, and that starts with Pakistan, Venezuela, Latvia, Cambodia, Afghanistan, the Bahamas, Trinidad and Tobago, Cuba, the Palestinian Territory, Ghana, Zimbabwe, Mongolia, Bulgaria, Kazakhstan, Jamaica, Benin, Sri Lanka, Serbia, and Uruguay. For the U.S.-based listeners, you may wonder where your state ranks in terms of listenership. Well, I'll tell you. We've been downloaded in every U.S. state plus Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, but the number one state in terms of downloads by a pretty healthy margin is California. Over 18% of all U.S. downloads come from California, so thank you very much to my California-based listeners. You are awesome, and keep spreading the word. Rounding out the top 10 are Virginia, home of Moxie from Your Brain on Facts, Delaware at number 3, which is where I live, so that explains the somewhat outsized influence of a relatively small state, then Texas, New York, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio, and Florida. And the bottom five, who are probably not hearing this right now based on what I'm seeing, are Montana, Alaska, West Virginia, Vermont, and with one total download since the show started, Wyoming. Come on, Wyoming. Let's get it together. You've got as many downloads as Latvia. Let's go. Let's get, let's get things together. But seriously, thank you to everyone who has listened, even if you've only listened once. And thank you especially to those who have told your friends, and a huge thank you to the patrons of this show Dan from Netflix and Swill, Nick from the Epic Film Guys, Kayla from Get Grim, Moxie from Your Brain on Facts, and Stacy, Ken, and brand new patron of the show, Megan. Welcome to the club, Megan. Thank you all so, so very much. And by the way, before I get into more episode-related stats, you've still got time to get in on the Patreon promotion, where you can get all the merchandise I have when you sign up at any level, starting at just two bucks a month. Of course, I've said that if I get to 15 patrons by the end of the promotion, I'll do some patron-only live streams, much like I did on Livestream for the Cure. And by the way, if you missed my Livestream for the Cure segment and you want to see it, you can go to bit.ly slash livesyy, that's L-I-V-E-S-Y-Y, and go to about the 11-hour, 50-minute mark. I'll put that in the show notes, too. I did two stories for the live stream, The Boarded Window by Ambrose Bierce and Diary of a Madman by Guy de Maupassant. It was a lot of fun and we raised money for a great cause that you can still donate to. And by the way, huge thank you to Caleb and Dan from Netflix and Swill, Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss, Julio from The Contrarians, and Alan from Interrupted Tales for donating during my segment. You guys are awesome and thanks as well to everyone who had such kind words in the chat. Uh, during and after my segment. Really, really appreciated that. And of course, huge credit goes to the Epic Film Guys and Dan from Netflix and Swill for putting that event together. Nick and Dan were there the whole time. I am in awe of what they pulled off that weekend. It was unbelievable. Now, on to more stats. The most popular episode of all time, as of today, which is about a week before you'll hear this episode, is still The Cat That Walked By Himself, which was episode 9 of season 1. The rest of the top five are also from season one, probably because they've been out for a longer time and have been more susceptible to one-off downloads. So number two is The Most Dangerous Game, which was episode two. Number three is the Kurt Vonnegut stories from episode seven. Number four is the H.P. Lovecraft stories from episode 23. 
And number five is Asleep in Armageddon by Ray Bradbury, which was episode 20. As a side note, the most popular episode of this season was the H.G. Wells stories, The Inexperienced Ghost and The Magic Shop, which as of today has one more download than episode two of this season, which featured stories from the American Old West. Now, it's always tough for me to pick my own favorites, but the H.G. Wells episode might have been my favorite to record as well. We will definitely be revisiting the catalog of Mr. Wells going forward. So that's what has been. Let's talk about what's coming up. Obviously, I'll be taking a bit of a break between seasons, but if you are a patron of the show, you'll be getting content at least once a month. I've decided that I'll be doing a longer story in installments for the patrons, and that story will be The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. So if you want to hear The Turn of the Screw, go ahead over to patreon.com syypodcast and sign up at any level. I'm excited to do that story in no small part because it is being adapted by Netflix for the next season of The Haunting of Hill House. I'll also be releasing a sneak preview episode for everybody, so if you're not sure yet whether you want to hear that story, I'll give you a taste. Also, make sure you're following at SYYpodcast on whatever social media outlet or outlets that you use, and that you are subscribed to the show in whatever podcast app you use, so that you know what's going on. I'll let you know about any collaborations I have between seasons, and any other news that might come up. Plus, of course, you'll know when Season 3 starts. I'm not exactly sure when that will be. I've got several things I want to do between now and then with the show, but we'll talk about that more at the end of today's episode. Also, speaking of collaborations, as of this recording, just a few minutes ago, Kayla released her newest episode, which features me and Jen from Haunted Happenstance and Kate from the Explore S podcast, who, in a bit of a synergistic twist here, starred on the aforementioned episode two of this season. So, if you want to hear all three of our voices telling fairy tales, go ahead over to Get Grim and download that episode today. That's episode 20, and I'll put that in the show notes. Well, that was all the stats I could think of for this State of the Show address. If you can think of anything else you'd like to know at the end of next season, let me know. And of course, if you heard your country or your state listed lower than where you think it should be, spread that word. Let your friends know all about your favorite short story podcast. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Share the show's posts on social media. And of course, keep on listening. Again, thank you very much to everyone who has listened. Thank you so, so much to all my patrons. When I had the idea to do this show, it never occurred to me that people I didn't already know would listen to it. So this has just been awesome. Thank you. So, with all that having been said, let's move on to this week's stories. I'm going to do the format a little bit differently this week, just because the stories are laid out in a way that if you're not familiar with them, I think it makes sense to do an intro to the first story, then read that story, and introduce the second story after that. Or at least it made sense in my head when I was putting the episode together. So, the first story today is called The Lady or the Tiger, and it's by Frank Stockton. Stockton was born in April of 1834 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His father discouraged him from pursuing a career in writing, instead wanting him to become a doctor. Stockton did not have the desire to go into medicine, and instead became a wood engraver and moved to Nutley, New Jersey. He and his wife stayed in New Jersey until 1867, which was about seven years after Stockton's father died. Stockton had been publishing some of his work up to this point, but he was not attempting to make a living at it. In 1867, he and his wife moved back to Philadelphia to write for a newspaper that his brother had started. His first fairy tale, called Tingling, that's with a T, 
was published that year, and he published The Tingling Tales in 1870. Stockton would become most well-known for his fables and fairy tales and children's stories. He did write for adults later in his career, but his most well-known works were originally meant for younger readers. Stockton died in 1902 at the age of 68 in Philadelphia. The Lady or the Tiger was first published in The Century magazine in 1882. The Century started in 1881 as a successor to Scribner's Monthly magazine, which had earlier merged with Putnam's magazine. You still with me? All right. The Century magazine ran until 1930. It began as an evangelical Christian magazine, but gradually became geared towards a more general audience and was at one point the largest periodical in the United States. Its earlier issues, as Scribner's, contained things like memoirs from Civil War soldiers, a biography of Abe Lincoln published in installments, and reports on Russian revolutionaries who opposed Tsar Alexander prior to the Russian Revolution in the early 20th century. And of course, as I mentioned before, The Lady or the Tiger was published in 1882 in that periodical. So that is the background on the story and the author, and this is today's first story. The Lady or the Tiger by Frank Stockton In the very olden time, there lived a semi-barbaric king, whose ideas, though somewhat polished and sharpened by progressiveness of distant Latin neighbors, were still large, florid, and untrammeled, as became the half of him which was barbaric. He was a man of exuberant fancy, and withal of an authority so irresistible that at his will he turned his varied fancies into facts. He was greatly given to self-communing, and when he and himself agreed upon anything, the thing was done. When every member of his domestic and political systems moved smoothly in its appointed course, his nature was bland and genial. But whenever there was a little hitch, and some of his orbs got out of their orbits, he was blander and more genial still, for nothing pleased him so much as to make the crooked straight and crush down uneven places. Among the borrowed notions by which his barbarism had become semified was that of the public arena, in which by exhibitions of manly and beastly valor the minds of his subjects were refined and cultured. But even here the exuberant and barbaric fancy asserted itself. The arena of the king was built not to give the people an opportunity of hearing the rhapsodies of dying gladiators, nor to enable them to view the inevitable conclusion of a conflict between religious opinions and hungry jaws, but for purposes far better adapted to widen and develop the mental energies of the people. This vast amphitheater, with its encircling galleries, its mysterious vaults, and its unseen passages, was an agent of poetic justice in which crime was punished or virtue rewarded by the decrees of an impartial and incorruptible chance. When a subject was accused of a crime of sufficient importance to interest the king, public notice was given that on an appointed day the fate of the accused person would be decided in the king's arena, a structure which well deserved its name, for although its form and plan were borrowed from afar, its purpose emanated solely from the brain of this man, who, every barleycorn a king, knew no tradition to which he owed more allegiance than pleased his fancy, and who engrafted on every adopted form of human thought and action the rich growth of his barbaric idealism. When all the people had assembled in the galleries, and the king, surrounded by his court, sat high upon his throne of royal state on one side of the arena, he gave a signal, 
A door beneath him opened, and the accused subject stepped out into the amphitheater. Directly opposite him, on the other side of the enclosed space, were two doors, exactly alike and side by side. It was the duty and the privilege of the person on trial to walk directly to these doors and open one of them. He could open either door he pleased. He was subject to no guidance or influence but that of the aforementioned impartial and incorruptible chance. If he opened the one, there came out of it a hungry tiger, the fiercest and most cruel that could be procured, which immediately sprang upon him and tore him to pieces as a punishment for his guilt. The moment that the case of the criminal was thus decided, doleful iron bells were clanged. Great wails went up from the hired mourners posted on the outer rim of the arena, and the vast audience, with bowed heads and downcast hearts, wended slowly their homeward way, mourning greatly that one so young and fair, or so old and respected, should have merited so dire a fate. But if the accused person opened the other door, there came forth from it a lady, the most suitable to his years and station that his majesty could select among his fair subjects, and to this lady he was immediately married, as a reward of his innocence. It mattered not that he might already possess a wife and family, or that his affections might be engaged upon an object of his own selection. The king allowed no such subordinate arrangements to interfere with his great scheme of retribution and reward. The exercises, as in the other instance, took place immediately and in the arena, Another door opened beneath the king, and a priest, followed by a band of choristers and dancing maidens blowing joyous airs on golden horns and treading in epithomic measure, advanced to where the pair stood side by side, and the wedding was promptly and cheerily solemnized. Then the gay brass bells rang forth their merry peals, the people shouted glad hurrahs, and the innocent man, preceded by children strewing flowers on his path, led his bride to his home. This was the king's semi-barbaric method of administering justice. Its perfect fairness is obvious. The criminal could not know out of which door would come the lady. He opened either he pleased, without having the slightest idea whether in the next instant he was to be devoured or married. On some occasions the tiger came out of one door and some out of the other. The decisions of this tribunal were not only fair, they were positively determinate. The accused person was instantly punished if he found himself guilty, and if innocent, he was rewarded on the spot, whether he liked it or not. There was no escape from the judgments of the king's arena. The institution was a very popular one. When the people gathered together on one of the great trial days, they never knew whether they were to witness a bloody slaughter or a hilarious wedding. This element of uncertainty lent an interest to the occasion which it could not otherwise have attained. Thus the masses were entertained and pleased, and the thinking part of the community could bring no charge of unfairness against this plan, for did not the accused person have the whole matter in his own hands? This semi-barbaric king had a daughter, as blooming as his most florid fancies, and with a soul as fervent and imperious as his own. As is usual in such cases, she was the apple of his eye, and was loved by him above all humanity. Among his courtiers was a young man of that fineness of blood and lowness of station common to the conventional heroes of romance who love royal maidens. This royal maiden was well satisfied with her lover, for he was handsome and brave to a degree that unsurpassed in all this kingdom, and she loved him with an ardor that had enough barbarism in it to make it exceedingly warm and strong. This love affair moved on happily for many months until one day the king happened to discover its existence. 
he did not hesitate nor waver in regard to his duty in the premises. The youth was immediately cast into prison, and a day was appointed for his trial in the king's arena. This, of course, was an especially important occasion, and His Majesty, as well as the people, was greatly interested in the workings and development of this trial. Never before had such a case occurred. Never before had a subject dared to love the daughter of a king. In after years such things became commonplace enough, but then they were, in no slight degree, novel and startling. The tiger cages of the kingdom were searched for the most savage and relentless beasts, from which the fiercest monster might be selected for the arena, and the ranks of maiden youth and beauty throughout the land were carefully surveyed by competent judges, in order that the young man might have a fitting bride, in case fate did not determine him for a different destiny. Of course, everybody knew that the deed with which the accused was charged had been done. He had loved the princess, and neither he, she, nor anyone else thought of denying the fact. But the king would not think of allowing any fact of this kind to interfere with the workings of the tribunal, in which he took such great delight and satisfaction. No matter how the affair turned out, the youth would be disposed of, and the king would take an aesthetic pleasure in watching the course of events, which would determine whether or not the young man had done wrong in allowing himself to love the princess. The appointed day arrived. From far and near the people gathered and thronged the great galleries of the arena, and crowds unable to gain admittance massed themselves against its outside walls. The king and his court were in their places opposite the twin doors, those fateful portals so terrible in their similarity. All was ready. The signal was given. A door beneath the royal party opened, and the lover of the princess walked into the arena. Tall, beautiful, fair, his appearance was greeted with a low hum of admiration and anxiety. Half the audience had not known so grand a youth had lived among them. No wonder the princess had loved him. What a terrible thing for him to be there. As the youth advanced into the arena, he turned, as the custom was, to bow to the king. But he did not think at all of that royal personage. His eyes were fixed upon the princess, who sat to the right of her father. Had it not been for the moiety of barbarism in her nature, it is probable that that lady would not have been there, but her intense and fervid soul would not allow her to be absent on an occasion in which she was so terribly interested. From the moment that the decree had gone forth that her lover should decide his fate in the king's arena, she had thought of nothing, night or day, but this great event, and the various subjects connected with it. Possessed of more power, influence, and force of character than any one who had ever before been interested in such a case, she had done what no other person had done. She had possessed herself of the secret of the doors. She knew in which of the two rooms that lay behind those doors stood the cage of the tiger with its open front and in which waited the lady. Through these thick doors, heavily curtained with skins on the inside, it was impossible that any noise or suggestion could come from within to the person who should approach to raise the latch of one of them. But gold and the power of a woman's will had brought the secret to the princess. And not only did she know in which room stood the lady ready to emerge, all blushing and radiant should her door be opened, but she knew who the lady was. It was one of the fairest and loveliest of the damsels of the court who had been selected as the reward of the accused youth, should he be proved innocent of the crime of aspiring to one so far above him. And the princess hated her. 
Often had she seen, or imagined that she had seen, this fair creature throwing glances of admiration upon the person of her lover, and sometimes she thought these glances were perceived and even returned. Now and then she had seen them talking together. It was but for a moment or two, but much can be said in a brief space. It may have been on most unimportant topics, but how could she know that? The girl was lovely, but she had dared to raise her eyes to the loved one of the princess, and with all the intensity of the savage blood transmitted to her through long lines of wholly barbaric ancestors, she hated the woman who blushed and trembled behind that silent door. When her lover turned and looked at her, and his eye met hers as she sat there paler and whiter than any one in the vast ocean of anxious faces about her, he saw, by that power of quick perception which is given to those whose souls are one, that she knew behind which door crouched the tiger, and behind which stood the lady. He had expected her to know it. He understood her nature, and his soul was assured that she would never rest until she had made plain to herself this thing, hidden to all other lookers-on, even to the king. The only hope for the youth in which there was any element of certainty was based upon the success of the princess in discovering this mystery, and the moment he looked upon her he saw that she had succeeded, as in his soul he knew she would succeed. Then it was that his quick and anxious glance asked the question, Which? It was as plain to her as if he had shouted it from where he stood. There was not an instant to be lost. The question was asked in a flash, it must be answered in another. Her right arm lay on the cushioned parapet before her. She raised her hand and made a slight quick movement toward the right. No one but her lover saw her. Every eye but his was fixed on the man in the arena. He turned, and with a firm and rapid step he walked across the empty space. Every heart stopped beating. Every breath was held. Every eye was fixed immovably upon that man. Without the slightest hesitation, he went to the door on the right and opened it. Now... The point of the story is this. Did the tiger come out of that door, or did the lady? The more we reflect upon this question, the harder it is to answer. It involves a study of the human heart, which leads us through devious mazes of passion, out of which it is difficult to find our way. Think of it, fair listener, not as if the decision of the question depended upon yourself, but upon that hot-blooded, semi-barbaric princess. Her soul, at a white heat, beneath the combined fires of despair and jealousy. She had lost him, but who should have him? How often, in her waking hours and in her dreams, she had started in wild horror and covered her face with her hands as she thought of her lover opening the door on the other side of which waited the cruel fangs of the tiger. But how much oftener had she seen him at the other door? How, in her grievous reveries, she had gnashed her teeth and torn her hair, when she saw his start of rapturous delight as he opened the door of the lady. How her soul had burned in agony when she had seen him rush to meet that woman with her flushing cheek and sparkling eye of triumph. When she had seen him lead her forth, his whole frame kindled with the joy of recovered life. When she had heard the glad shouts from the multitude and the wild ringing of the happy bells, when she had seen the priest with his joyous followers advance to the couple and make them man and wife before her very eyes, and when she had seen them walk away together upon the path of flowers, followed by the tremendous shouts of the hilarious multitude, in which her one despairing shriek was lost and drowned. Would it not be better for him to die at once, and to go to wait for her in the blessed regions of the semi-barbaric futurity? 
And yet, that awful tiger, those shrieks, that blood. Her decision had been indicated in an instant, but it had been made after days and nights of anguished deliberation. She had known that she would be asked. She had decided what she would answer, and, without the slightest hesitation, she had moved her hand to the right. The question of her decision is one not to be lightly considered, and it is not for me to presume to set myself up as the one person able to answer it. And so, I leave it with all of you. Which came out of the opened door? The lady or the tiger? not familiar with this story before today's episode, and you were hoping for an answer to the question posed in the title, well, I must apologize. I myself had actually not read the story before I did this episode, but I was familiar with the phrase the lady or the tiger's meaning as an unknowable question, and I still was a bit shocked by the fact that the reader was left to figure it out themselves, so that's how bright I am. Another thing I didn't know is that there is a sequel to this story, and as it happens, that is the next story on today's episode. That story is called The Discourager of Hesitancy, and it was published three years after The Lady or the Tiger in the same periodical, The Century. So, let's see what exactly happens there, and whether this mystery is actually resolved in today's second story. The Discourager of Hesitancy by Frank Stockton it was nearly a year after the occurrence of that event in the arena of the semi-barbaric king known as the Incident of the Lady or the Tiger that there came to the palace of this monarch a deputation of five strangers from a far country. These men, of venerable and dignified aspect and demeanor, were received by a high officer of the court, and to him they made known their errand. "'Most noble officer,' said the speaker of the deputation, it so happened that one of our countrymen was present here, in your capital city, on that momentous occasion when a young man who had dared to aspire to the hand of your king's daughter had been placed in the arena, in the midst of the assembled multitude, and ordered to open one of two doors, not knowing whether a ferocious tiger would spring out upon him, or a beauteous lady would advance, ready to become his bride." Our fellow citizen, who was then present, was a man of super-sensitive feelings, and at that moment, when the youth was about to open the door, he was so fearful, lest he should behold a horrid spectacle, that his nerves failed him, and he fled precipitately from the arena, and, mounting his camel, rode homeward as fast as he could go. We were all very much interested in the story which our countrymen told us, and we were extremely sorry that he did not wait to see the end of the affair. We hoped, however, that in a few weeks some traveller from your city would come among us and bring us further news. But up to that day when we left our country, no such traveller had arrived. At last it was determined that the only thing to be done was to send a deputation to this country, and to ask the question, which came out of the open door? the lady or the tiger. When the high officer had heard the mission of this most respectable deputation, he led the five strangers into an inner room, where they were seated upon soft cushions, and where he ordered coffee, pipes, sherbet, and other semi-barbaric refreshments to be served them. 
Then, taking his seat before them, he thus addressed the visitors. Most noble strangers, before answering the question you have come so far to ask, I will relate to you an incident which occurred not very long after that to which you have referred. It is well known in all regions hereabout that our great king is very fond of the presence of beautiful women about his court. All the ladies-in-waiting upon the queen and royal family are most lovely maidens, brought here from every part of the kingdom. The fame of this concourse of beauty, unequalled in any other royal court, has spread far and wide, and had it not been for the equally widespread fame of the systems of impetuous justice adopted by our king, many foreigners would doubtless have visited our court. But not very long ago there arrived here from a distant land a prince of distinguished appearance and undoubted rank. To such a one, of course, a royal audience was granted, and our king met him very graciously and begged him to make known the object of his visit. Thereupon the prince informed his royal highness that, having heard of the superior beauty of the ladies of his court, he had come to ask permission to make one of them his wife. When our king heard this bold announcement, his face reddened, he turned uneasily on his throne, and we were all in dread, lest some quick words of furious condemnation should leap out from his quivering lips. But, by a mighty effort, he controlled himself, and after a moment's silence, he turned to the prince and said, "'Your request is granted. Tomorrow at noon you shall wed one of the fairest damsels of our court.' Then, turning to his officers, he said, "'Give orders that everything be prepared for a wedding in the palace at high noon tomorrow.' Convey this royal prince to suitable apartments. Send him to tailors, bootmakers, hatters, jewelers, armorers, men of every craft whose services he may need. Whatever he asks, provide. And let all be ready for the ceremony tomorrow. But your majesty, exclaimed the prince, before we make these preparations I would like— Say no more, roared the king. My royal orders have been given, and nothing more is needed to be said— you asked a boon, I granted it, and I will hear no more on the subject. Farewell, my prince, until tomorrow noon. At this the king arose and left the audience chamber, while the prince was hurried away to the apartments selected for him. Here came to him tailors, hatters, jewelers, and every one who was needed to fit him out in a grand attire for the wedding. But the mind of the prince was much troubled and perplexed. I do not understand— he said to his attendants, the precipitancy of action. When am I to see the ladies that I may choose among them? I wish opportunity not only to gaze upon their forms and faces, but to become acquainted with their relative intellectual development. We can tell you nothing, was the answer. What our king thinks right, that will he do. More than this we know not. His majesty's notions seem to be very peculiar, said the prince and, so far as I can see, they do not at all agree with mine. At that moment an attendant whom the prince had not noticed came and stood beside him. This was a broad-shouldered man of cheery aspect, who carried its hilt in his right hand and its broad back resting on his broad arm an enormous scimitar, the upturned edge of which was keen and bright as any razor. Holding this formidable weapon as tenderly as though it had been a sleeping infant, this man drew closer to the prince and bowed. "'Who are you?' exclaimed his highness, starting back at the sight of the frightful weapon. "'I,' said the other with a courteous smile, 
am the discourager of hesitancy. When the king makes known his wishes to any one, a subject or visitor, whose disposition in some little points may be supposed not only to coincide with that of his majesty, I am appointed to attend him closely, that, should he think of pausing in the path of obedience to the royal will, he may look at me and proceed. The prince looked at him and proceeded to be measured for a coat. The tailors and shoemakers and hatters worked all night, and the next morning, when everything was ready, and the hour of noon was drawing nigh, the prince again anxiously inquired of his attendants when he might expect to be introduced to the ladies. "'The king will attend to that,' they said. "'We know nothing of the matter.' "'Your Highness,' said the discourager of hesitancy, approaching with a courtly bow, "'will observe the excellent quality of this edge.' And drawing a hair from his head, he dropped it upon the upturned edge of his scimitar, upon which it was cut in two at the moment of touching. The prince glanced and turned upon his heel. Now came officers to conduct him to the grand hall of the palace in which the ceremony was to be performed. Here the prince found the king seated upon his throne, with his nobles, his courtiers, and his officers standing about him in magnificent array. The prince was led to a position in front of the king, to whom he made obeisance, and then said, "'Your Majesty, before I proceed further—' At this moment an attendant, who had approached with a long scarf of delicate silk, wound it about the lower part of the prince's face so quickly and adroitly that he was obliged to cease speaking. Then, with wonderful dexterity, the rest of the scarf was wound around the prince's head so that he was completely blindfolded. Thereupon the attendant quickly made openings in the scarf over the mouth and ears so that the prince might breathe and hear, and, fastening the ends of the scarf securely, he retired. The first impulse of the prince was to snatch the silken folds from his head and face, but, as he raised his hands to do so, he heard beside him the voice of the discourager of hesitancy, who gently whispered, "'I am here, your highness.' And, with a shudder, the arms of the prince fell down by his side. Now before him he heard the voice of a priest, who had begun the marriage service in use in that semi-barbaric country. At his side he could hear a delicate rustle which seemed to proceed from fabrics of soft silk. Gently putting forth his hand, he felt folds of such silk close behind him. Then came the voice of the priest requesting him to take the hand of the lady by his side, and reaching forth his right hand, the prince received within it another hand, so small, so soft, so delicately fashioned, and so delightful to the touch that a thrill went through his being. Then, as was the custom in the country, the priest first asked the lady would she have this man to be her husband, to which the answer gently came in the sweetest voice he had ever heard, I will. Then ran raptures rampant through the prince's blood. The touch, the tone, enchanted him. All the ladies of that court were beautiful. The discourager was behind him, and through his parted scarf he boldly answered, Yes, I will. Whereupon the priest pronounced them man and wife. Now the prince heard a little bustle about him, and the long scarf was rapidly unrolled from his head, and he turned with a start to gaze upon his bride. To his utter amazement, there was no one there. He stood alone. Unable on the instant to ask a question or say a word, he gazed blankly about him. Then the king arose from his throne and came down and took him by the hand. "'Where is my wife?' gasped the prince. "'She is here,' said the king, leading him to a curtained doorway at the side of the hall. 
The curtains were drawn aside, and the prince, entering, found himself in a long apartment, near the opposite wall of which stood a line of forty ladies, all dressed in rich attire, and each one apparently more beautiful than the rest. Waving his hand toward the line, the king said to the prince, "'There is your bride. Approach, and lead her forth. But remember this, that if you attempt to take away one of the unmarried damsels of our court, your execution will be instantaneous. Now, delay no longer.' Step up and take your bride. The prince, as in a dream, walked slowly along the line of ladies, and then walked slowly back again. Nothing could he see about any one of them to indicate that she was more of a bride than the others. Their dresses were all similar. They all blushed. They all looked up and then looked down. They all had charming little hands. Not one spoke a word. Not one lifted a finger to make a sign. It was evident that the orders given them had been very strict. "'Why this delay?' roared the king. "'If I had been married this day to one so fair as the lady who wedded you, I should not wait one second to claim her.' The bewildered prince walked again up and down the line, and this time there was a slight change in the countenances of two of the ladies. One of the fairest gently smiled as he passed her. Another, just as beautiful, slightly frowned. "'Now,' said the prince to himself, I am sure that it is one of those two ladies whom I have married, but which? One smiled, and would not any woman smile when she saw in such a case her husband coming toward her? Then again, on the other hand, would not any woman frown when she saw her husband come toward her and fail to claim her? Would she not knit her lovely brows? Would she not inwardly say, It is, don't you know it, don't you feel it? Come! But if this woman had not been married, would she not frown when she saw the man looking at her? Would she not say inwardly, don't stop at me? It is the next but one. It is two ladies above. Go on. Then again, the one who married me did not see my face. Would she not now smile if she thought me comely? But if I wedded the one who frowned, could she restrain her disapprobation if she did not like me? Smiles invite the approach of true love. A frown is a reproach to a tardy advance. A smile. Now hear me, loudly cried the king. In ten seconds, if you do not take the lady we have given you, she who has just been made your bride shall be made your widow. And as the last word was uttered, the discourager of hesitancy stepped close behind the prince and whispered, I am here. Now the prince could not hesitate an instant. He stepped forward and took one of the two ladies by the hand. Loud rang the bells, loud cheered the people, and the king came forward to congratulate the prince. He had taken his lawful bride. Now then, said the officer to the deputation of five strangers from a far country, when you can decide among yourselves which lady the prince chose, the one who smiled or the one who frowned, then I will tell you which came out of the open door, the lady or the tiger. At the latest accounts, the five strangers had not yet decided. Well, if you were expecting resolution and ended up with more questions, I apologize again. But hey, at least we know the prince from the second story wasn't executed, right? So what do you think? Hit up the show on social media and let me know. Did the princess send her lover to his death or to the arms of another woman? Did the prince choose the lady who smiled or the one who frowned? I have my thoughts, but I want to hear yours. 
Now, before I sign off for today, I want to talk a little bit about season three. What stories do you want to hear? Have you written a short story that you'd like to hear on the show? Get me those suggestions and those stories as soon as you can. I'm looking to get the stories compiled soon, and that means I'll be setting the schedule soon, which means I need your short stories soon. If you are working on something that'll be ready later, just let me know that too and I can pencil you in. I'll be taking the next week or so off from recording before I start the turn of the screw for the patrons, and I'll be spending a lot of that time reading and finding stories for the show. So give me some material. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and this season of Stories of Your and Yours. Let me know what you've thought. Leave an iTunes review for me to read on the show, tell a friend about your favorite short story podcast, or share the show in whatever way you see fit. Remember, subscribe, follow on social media, and you'll always know what's going on. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Until next time, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Annis. Thanks for listening. And remember, there's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. We'll see you next time. <laughs>